Emily Abin, the creative partner for worship at the local church, and you are listening to the Sunday Sermon Podcast featuring the messages from our Sunday liturgy. The local church is a bold and inclusive faith community based in Chatham County, North Carolina. We gather for worship every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. in person at Woods Charter School in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and online via Facebook Live and YouTube. No matter where you find yourself physically, spiritually, or emotionally, you belong at the local church. And we're so glad you're here. Our scripture reading this morning is from Gospel according to Matthew in the New Testament, chapter 25, verses 36 through 41. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory, and all the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate people from one another as shepherds separate the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right hand and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. And I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them. Truly, I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left hand, You who are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not give me clothing. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and we did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is the word of God for all of God's creation. Thanks be to God.
and final week of our Ask Us Anything series. I hope that you've uh, enjoyed this series. If you haven't, let Leah know. Um, uh, just kidding, just kidding. You can let me know. Um, it wasn't her idea. It was my idea, just to be, to be fair, right? But, um, I don't know why I said that. So, uh, but you can let me know, too. But we do hope that you have enjoyed Off the Rails, back on track. Uh, we do hope that you've enjoyed. If you've missed any of the last couple of weeks, then uh, you can catch up on our podcast. We've talked about Trinity. We've talked about prayer. Last week, we talked about the Bible and LGBTQ+. Today, we'll get there in a minute. But this has been all about leaning into those hard and holy questions, uh, creating space for uh, conversation and giving you the chance to speak your deep ponderings into to existence, your wonderings about life and faith. Uh, and in week two, we began this time, this message, with a quote from author and theologian Frederick Buechner uh, about the ants and the pants of faith. Uh, Doubt is the ants and the pants of faith. Do you remember that? I got another quotation of his this week that I stumbled upon recently that I think just kind of wraps up this series so well. I thought it was fitting. Frederick Buechner says, to be wise is to be eternally curious. To be wise is to be eternally curious. That's our hope, not only for this series, but for you as a human being, that this would instill in us a wisdom rooted not in certainty, but curiosity. Not in certainty, but curiosity as we seek together a deeper, richer, and more abundant life. So even though this is the final week of the series, this project will live on at the website askusanything.church. This is the hub for this initiative, this project. It's where questions and responses will continue to live even beyond the four weeks of this series. And if you've still got burning questions, you can still ask them here, and we'll continue to post responses as time goes on. If you don't have a question to ask, you can still participate uh, because we want everybody to be involved as much as we can. You can browse the questions that have been asked there and then vote on which ones you want us to tackle next. Um, And so before we get to this week's question, which is the most upvoted of all of the ones that have been asked so far, I want to remind us of our ground rules for this series. Here's the first one. These aren't answers. These are responses. People have been grappling with many of these questions for a long, long, long time. So to say that we're going to answer them in 20-ish minutes or less would be foolish and arrogant. I'm not that good, okay? So these are responses, not answers. Sound good? All right, here's the second one. This is one perspective, and you don't have to agree. We're coming at this with a posture of humility. We might be wrong. This isn't meant to be a period at the end of a sentence, but a semicolon. This is a conversation, and we take that seriously. Speaking of, uh, after my sermon last week about the Bible and LGBTQ+, the conversation did continue with many of you, and I was so, so grateful for that. Uh, Know that the door is always open. One thing that came up in those conversations is that at the end of last week's sermon, when I was responding to the question, does the Bible still matter? I left my response more ambiguous than I had intended to. Uh, So I just want to go on record here and say emphatically that I do very much believe that the Bible still matters. 
Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Sarah. Uh, as I said last week, it gives us a picture of a world of relentless love, of extravagant mercy, of a world turned upside down, of, of swords beaten into plowshares, of all things made new, and we're invited to step into that story and make it our own. We take scripture so seriously here at the local church that we're willing to engage, willing to think critically about it, willing to let it guide how we live and move in the world. So let there be no question that for me, yes, the Bible does still matter. Just want to make that clear. That said, finally, here's our third ground rule. This is not about information. It's about transformation. Not about information. It's about transformation. We're not just responding to these questions so that you leave here smarter. We do hope that happens. We do hope that you leave here with a little bit more knowledge. But we also hope that we can take this information that we share together this week and every week and, and then integrate it into our daily rhythms so that it all might, by God's grace, transform how we live and move in the world. This is not about information. This is about transformation. You with me? Sound good? All right. Away we go. Here's our most upvoted question so far. I'm trying to understand the conception of hell. If a truly horrible person, and I mean horrible, can ask for forgiveness moments before death, is he forgiven? I also struggle with having a hell at all, as God is loving and forgiving, and I can't imagine God wanting a hell in the first place. I guess just the whole concept of hell is what I'm questioning. Y'all have a good week. Good? Uh, <laughs> such a good question. Clearly, many of you have asked this question or a similar question, because behind this question, there is a lot at stake for us. There are more questions with significant implications. There are questions of salvation, what that means, questions about the afterlife and what awaits us when we die, questions about universalism versus exclusivism, and as you heard, questions about how a loving God could justify something like hell. There are questions of whether hell even exists at all. Questions of what happens if someone doesn't pray a particular prayer or profess Jesus as Savior before they die. What about people who've never heard the gospel, never had a chance to respond? And even beyond these questions, there are more questions still about the church's troubled past of using the concept of hell as a means of control and fear, manipulation, submission, as a tool for more power and influence for its own sake and its own gain. Whew, ready for some good news, bad news? Bad news is there's no way, no way that I will cover everything that I wish I could today. And so again, just know that the door is always open for continued conversation. I'd love nothing more. And the good news, we'll get there. You got to stay tuned. You got to listen to the end, okay? But first, let's talk big picture about hell. What are we talking about when we talk about hell? Because maybe you've been taught that it's pretty clear. Things are black and white. If you're a good person and do all the right things, you go to heaven. And if not, you go to hell. Maybe you've been taught that you have to say a particular series of magic words and voila, you're in. And if not, then, then well, that's too bad. Maybe you've heard that it's just about what you believe. You just have to believe that Jesus is Lord and Savior. And if you've checked that box, then you're good. And if not, if you're on the fence or you have some doubts, ugh, tough. There's a good chance that it's eternal punishment 
that awaits you. Maybe you've heard that. Maybe you have this picture in your mind of God like Simon Cowell, an American idol, right? Or, or another judge who can either send you to Hollywood or send you home. Send you to heaven or send you to hell, separating the sheep from the goats, as we heard in Matthew. What's going on there? Or maybe you've been condemned to hell yourself by someone who claimed to have it all figured out. It's many of these ideas and situations and hypotheticals and real-life experiences, too, that have left many, understandably, not wanting anything to do with this church thing, with this Jesus person, with the Christian faith. Some days, I don't know if I can blame them. Shouldn't the good news be good after all? So what I'm going to do this morning (laughs) is trace the idea of hell from the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, the story of God and God's people before Jesus, to the New Testament, the collection of narratives and stories and letters about Jesus' friends and followers and the church, the body of Christ. We're going to look at how the idea of hell was developed in Scripture, how it's described, how it functioned for the ancient hearers and those who follow Jesus. And then, once we do that, believe it or not, we'll find some good news that I think is actually good. Y'all ready? Good. So I'm going to offer three words this morning the Bible gives us for hell. These are the words the Bible uses specifically or the ones that we've come to translate as hell. We'll start in the Old Testament with this one, one of the very top, Sheol. Sheol. Most often, when we think of conceptions of hell in the Old Testament, the word that's used is Sheol. You might also hear it described as the pit. We heard Sheol mentioned in our grounding moment, Psalm 139. The psalmist writes this, If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed, my bead, my bed, that was me, in Sheol, you are there. In Judaism, Sheol is the place of the dead or the realm of the dead. It has a connotation of being dark and dusty and shadowy and overall just not great. Here's another example from Psalm 88. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Ooh. And what's important to understand is that there's no bifurcated place where some go one place, others go another. Others go to Sheol. Instead, everyone ends up in Sheol. In Judaism, everyone ends up in Sheol. Everyone is brought to equal status there. But what's interesting is that also in Judaism, there's this concept of biological death versus qualitative death. Biological death versus qualitative death. Biological death is what we understand to be what biologically, physically dead. But a qualitative death, a qualitative death is a death that occurs while you're still living. It essentially means that you're no longer flourishing. You're no longer thriving. Your quality of life is suffering, likely due to your own actions, according to Jewish tradition, your failure to follow the way of God and make wise choices. And one of the things that we see happen is that in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, Sheol becomes a way of talking about that qualitative death. And so it comes to be used rhetorically. In other words, the concept of Sheol becomes a teaching tool to help choose between the way of life, following God, living a righteous life, 
and the way of death or shale, not caring for the widow or the orphan, not loving God, not loving your neighbor. So that's shale. How are we doing? You with me? All right, Natalie's good. And also, uh, in the Old Testament, another word for hell is Gehenna. Gehenna. Shows up in the New Testament too. We'll get to that shortly. But Gehenna begins as a geographical place. Literally, it's the Valley of Hinnom, which is a place uh, in Jerusalem. In the 700s BC, the Valley of Hinnom was a place where child sacrifices occurred. Uh, And it was a place of fire as well. We see that described here in Jeremiah 7 in the Old Testament. They go on building the high place of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. So we see it described here, uh, the valley of Hinnom, Gehenna, uh, as the place where sons and daughters burn in the fire. Because of how much of an abomination this is to God, Gehenna comes to be developed uh, in the Jewish consciousness as a place of abject evil, a place where not just those who participate in child sacrifice are bound, but those who participate in any sort of unrighteousness end up. Gehenna, too, begins to serve rhetorically as a reminder or a monument of the sort of fate that awaited you were you not to live a life of righteousness and why you should be faithful to God. All right, that's Gehenna. So we've got Sheol, we've got Gehenna. Jesus, as a student of Judaism and a rabbi, a teacher, would have known Gehenna as well. And that's why Gehenna was on his lips, as we discover in the New Testament. Gehenna shows up 12 times in the New Testament, and 11 of them are spoken by Jesus. They're among Jesus' own words. Here's an example from Matthew 5. Jesus says, But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say you fool, you'll be liable to the hell, Gehenna, of fire. So what Jesus is saying is if you insult another person, if you talk smack about another person, if you call them an idiot, Hell or Gehenna is what awaits you. Basic gist, this verse. But Jesus also uses the term Hades for hell. So he uses Gehenna a bunch. He also uses Hades. And this is the third of three words for hell in the Bible. Sheol, Gehenna, and now Hades. Hades is the term for the realm of the dead in Greek and Roman literature. And it would have been familiar to hearers in a Roman-occupied context. Scholars believe that Hades and Gehenna come to be used interchangeably uh, in the New Testament, um, which is how Gehenna also develops this connotation of being a realm for the dead too, just like Hades. We see Hades feature prominently in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, Jesus tells the story of a rich man who is everything he could ever want. He feasts night and day. There's a poor man named Lazarus who every day sits outside of the rich man's gates longing for just a crumb, just a crumb of what the rich man uh, has on his table. But again and again, day in and day out, he goes without. Jesus describes how Lazarus dies and is lifted up, carried away by the angels to be with Abraham, the father of the faith. And the rich man dies too, and he finds them himself in Hades, Jesus says, a place of torment. Then there's this fascinating exchange between Abraham 
and the rich man, the rich man begging for mercy. And what's important to notice here is that again, again, a distinction is being made between righteousness and unrighteousness. And that unrighteousness for the rich man is rooted, don't miss this, it's rooted in lack of care and concern for neighbor. It's about his wealth and his unwillingness to share it, the wall that that puts up. So, just to recap, in the Old Testament we have Sheol, where everyone goes, but it's also a way of describing a qualitative death in this life. Gehenna, a monument and warning to the righteous, both are used rhetorically to describe, to paint a picture of how to live well, why we should live well, wisely and faithfully as God's people. And in the New Testament, Gehenna is developed more and used interchangeably with Hades, where again, righteousness and unrighteousness are a matter of your faithfulness, as evidenced by your love of God, which is manifest in concern for neighbor. Doing all right? It's a lot. I know. know. You can listen again on the podcast if you didn't catch them. But what I want you to notice is that it has nothing to do with saying specific words, whether someone ascribes to a certain religion. Rather, it is, again, all about the love of God as made manifest in love of neighbor, in particular actions that demonstrate care and concern for the other. And that point is made even clearer when we look at Matthew 25, which Allison read so well for us this morning. It's the most explicit that we see of Jesus describing who inherits eternal life and those for whom eternal punishment is reserved. Jesus says, For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not give me clothing. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Next slide. I think we missed one, did we? They will also, yeah, then, there it is. Then they will also will answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me now. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Thanks, Steve. In other words, eternal punishment is reserved for those who didn't welcome the stranger, didn't feed the hungry, quench the thirst of those who are parched. It's reserved for those who didn't clothe the naked or visit the imprisoned. What we see here again is what we continue to see when we look at the whole breadth of Scripture. When looking at passages that have to do with hell, God is deeply concerned with how we treat one another. And our deliverance, our liberation, our salvation is bound up together. For Jesus, he is trying to impress upon his disciples that to inherit eternal life is to be about kingdom work. It's about working by God's grace for a world where all have enough, where relationships are put right, where there is justice and mercy and abundance, where resources are shared and the common good is prioritized. Just as I mentioned last week, it comes back again. It comes back again to that greatest commandment, love of God and love of neighbor. In the story of Scripture, we see a picture painted again and again of hell as a realm or dimension or experience apart from God, where God's will is not done, where walls have been put up, 
where there is separation and disconnection and isolation from God and from one another, which is often the same thing. That's hell. And when we look at the New Testament, in particular, especially the passages lifted up this morning, we've got, we've got name-calling against a, a friend or a family member. And what does that do but create separation? What does that do but put up more walls between ourselves and another? It puts distance between us. It's not an act of love. It's a fracturing of relationship. It's not a moving toward. It's moving away. A moving away from the kingdom. Then we heard Lazarus and the rich man, right, where there was separation and distance. Walls put up, created due to inequality, lack of concern for the poor, a wealth that wouldn't be shared, and that fractures the kingdom of God, too. There's a fracturing of the kingdom when, we go hung- when the hungry go without food, when the naked go without clothing, when the sick go without healing and health, and strangers can't find belonging. That does nothing. That does nothing but create more isolation, more distance, more separation. It's the opposite of kingdom living. This is the point that Jesus is really working to impress. It becomes clear the more you read and dig into the story of Scripture that heaven has everything to do with moving toward God's desire for wholeness, restoration, community, belovedness, and hell has everything to do with moving in the opposite direction, moving away from or creating separation between God and neighbor. In our daily lives, chances are good that we regularly fall short in loving our neighbor well. Maybe we talk smack about another person, or maybe we spend time counting pennies uh, rather than giving it away. Maybe we think of another as a means to an end, or rather than an end in and of themselves. Maybe we become so self-absorbed that we fail to see the needs of another. Maybe we fail to give someone the benefit of the doubt. We fail to give our time and energy to somebody who could use it. Maybe we find ourselves complicit in systemic injustice. In each of these instances, we're putting a wall up. We're moving away from community, from connection, from the kingdom. In each of these instances, we are quite literally running like hell toward hell. In fact, we can catch glimpses of hell on earth here and now. And we don't have to look too hard. But here's the good news. I told you it'd be good news. Here's the good news. Jesus doesn't give up on us. Jesus comes to break down those barriers. And I take heart that as we read in Psalm 139, even as we make our beds in Sheol, even there, we find God. God finds us. And as Paul says in Romans 8, nothing, nothing not life, and especially not death, can separate us from God's love in Christ Jesus. And though we might resist it, though we might turn inward on ourselves, become self-centered, separate ourselves from God and from one another, moving away from God's love and God's will for us and for all of creation, the Spirit never stops pursuing us, turning us outward again. Jesus never stops forgiving us, working in us and in our hearts to again and again, turn us back toward God to, lo- to live a life worthy of the calling that we have been given, to raise us to new and eternal life, which is life abundant. The person who asked this question asked why God would want a hell, and the truth is God doesn't. I don't believe that God wants anyone there, but God also loves us enough not to force us. 
that wouldn't be very loving. C.S. Lewis once quipped, the gates of hell are shut from the inside out. In other words, the doors are locked from the inside. God has given us all we need to unlock those doors. Jesus comes to conquer hell. Show us what, what that life of restoration and healing and wholeness and belovedness, community, communion, looks like and how to move toward it. I still have so many questions. Maybe you do too. Hopefully that's true. Does a literal hell exist? What about people who are separated from God by no fault of their own? And so many others. There's this great, great quotation that if you spend any time with me, you've probably heard me say by St. Anselm, who uh, was an 11th century monk and theologian, who said, ours is a faith seeking understanding. Ours is a faith seeking understanding. We get to the end and we're still not done. May it be so as we keep asking questions together, cultivating a curious community, finding life together, leaning into the mystery of faith, all by God's grace. Amen. Hey, it's Leah again. If you love what you hear, share this episode or send it to someone who could use a little good news this week. We'd also love for you to leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. For more information about The Local Church, visit thelocalchurchpbo.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Local Church PBO. Until next time, love where you are.